Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instruction given by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Porges. Dr. Porges is a distinguished psychologist and neuroscientist. He is a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, professor emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He's director of the Kinsey Institute Stress Research Consortium at Indiana University Bloomington and co-founder of the Polyvagal Institute. Dr. Porges served as president of the Society of Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences and has published more than 400 peer-reviewed papers across several disciplines. As a leading expert in developmental psychophysiology and developmental behavioral neuroscience, Dr. Porges is the mind behind the groundbreaking polyvagal theory. Adopted by clinicians around the world, the polyvagal theory has provided exciting new insights into the way our autonomic nervous system unconsciously mediates social engagement, trust, and intimacy. Dr. Porges knows and understands the relationship between safety and the nervous system and believes that if we want to improve the world, it starts with making people feel safer. So, Dr. Porges, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Well, thank you for inviting me and thank you for the lovely introduction. I got a little tongue-tied there. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, you probably um, did a better job than I could have said. <laughs> I gave a, a brief introduction, but so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got to who and where you are today? Well, I've been on a long journey about literally trying to figure out what is it to be a human being, something as simple as that. And I was always interested in, let's use the term mind-body relationships. We would call them brain-body in science, but mind-body. That is how intentional thought changed our bodies and how our bodies influenced intentional thought. So it was always about this co-regulation between this very complex neural circuit that we call the brain and all these organs that it's managing. But part of modern uh, perspective in modern medicine has been not to literally listen to the body. So even though it's really transmitting all these impulses from the body, our culture says, don't, don't pay attention to it. And what we end up with is a numb society that is, quote, stressed out because it doesn't listen to the feedback loops that keep our body healthy. And in doing that, it doesn't understand that our physiological state is really this very important, uh, I use the term intervening variable, but think of it as mediating our relationship with the world. So when our body is in a state that supports health, growth, and restoration, we're accessible, we're interactive, we're benevolent, we're compassionate. But shift that physiological state to, let's say, chronic pain or any level of dysregulation of visceral organs, the uh, psychological experiences in the higher parts of our brain become much more defensive, self-protective, and we can literally just step back and think about what the pandemic did to us and the mm. consequence even in our political environment now, which is all about threat. And when we feel threatened, we care less about others. So in a, let's say, perverse way, the threat signals that we are experiencing are manipulating us not to care about others. And it's a strange thing to observe because you're both the observer and you're participating because those cues are really, truly threat cues like the pandemic. Wow. Oh, so um, the bottom line is I've always been interested <laughs> in these things, okay? And uh, it's even becomes more, let's say, embedded because um, when I started uh, my academic career, I entered a very new discipline that was called psychophysiology, which was the link between psychological or mental phenomena and physiological activity. It was really new, a couple, like two to four years old when I entered. And uh, I entered it, and then I started to change the perspective. The perspective was uh, basically signatures of mental activity were embedded in physiology. But that was not satisfying to me because I wanted bi bi bidirectionality in my conceptualization. 
And I want physiological state, the way we are physiological, how our body is organized and running to influence our mental behavior and our mental behavior to influence our physiology. So that's been this journey of literally taking a emerging discipline that least acknowledged that there were mental and physical parallels to shift it from parallels to now into a more integrated bi-directional system between the body and, and the brain. And that became polyvagal theory. Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and, you know, to, to listen to you talk, it, you can tell that you've been doing this for a while and that you know what you're talking about, you know, and, and you, you don't fall short anywhere near of your title. So um, I appreciate you. you sharing that. Um, also, I think it's safe to say that when people hear your name, they may automatically associate it with the nervous, the nervous system or polyvagal theory. But I wanted to ask you before you, you know, became who you are today, what was early life like for you? And did your early life affect um, your decision to become who you are? Well, you know, it's always fun to go back to high school reunions, right? And mm -hmm. even when they are like many, many decades and people see you and say, I knew you'd end up like this. You know, this is who I was early. And I just was kind of like trying to find a discipline. And my own journey was really not only did I not, was it not a discipline that encapsulated what I wanted to do, but I actually had to help frame that discipline, create the methodology for it, uh, do the scientific background, uh, because without the science behind it, it's just interesting ideas. But when there's a science behind it, it's leveraged into a different world. And my role in this whole journey was, was I, let's say, use the term, talented enough, smart enough to navigate through a very complex maze, which we call the academic world, the scientific world, to come up with basic core principles that were literally un irrefutable in terms of core principles that could be now translated into our human experience. And that's been the journey in a sense. So like polyvagal theory to many people, when they hear it, they say, oh, that, that's really it. That tells my story. It's very intuitive. Now, it's intuitive and tells your story because there's a deep validity to the theory because it has a lot to do with our own evolutionary journey into becoming modern humans. Hmm. I see. Um, I think that a big part of what we now know about mental and emotional health is seen a lot differently than, than it was in the past. Um, as a leading expert in psychology, what does mental health look like to you and what does it mean to you? Well, it's interesting that you, okay, first of all, categorizing me in the area of psychology, even though my degree is in it, I'm, it's not really where I plant my feet. I plant my feet okay. all over the place. And sure. my, my CV represents that because I've published maybe in 20 different disciplines because I had to know the language of those disciplines to do the communication. But mental health, now lives in many disciplines. So at one point in time, let's say you go to a physician and they you have a bunch of symptoms and they can't find any organic problem. And they say, oh, go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And they're still doing that, but it's really not the world where the world is changing because now we're at least talking about functional disorders of the of the body, of the gut. Let's talk about the gut. Um, which is really very prevalent in the world of mental health. And rather than thinking of like irritable bowel as a disease that is distinct from mental health, it can be viewed as part of an integrated nervous system that is really going through phases of states of defense. And the actual irritable bowel activity is actually a defensive reaction. Uh, so we start to see the functional ad adaptation of what we used to call pathology, but basically being dependent upon the body, not being in a safe enough state to clearly regulate itself in the presence of others. Wow. It's, it's amazing to me how what we used to think about, like, you know, being nervous or scared. Mm-hmm really was just scratching the surface of what was yeah. really going on. I think you're, you're tapping into, let's say, so you're tapping into a reality that I understand, but now I have to step back and realize 
a lot of people are really feeling guilty for being scared or being nervous or being anxious. And they're not recognizing that their physiology is literally signaling something to them that their bodies are not in a safe state. It's just not in a safe state. So what they end up doing is blaming themselves, getting angry at themselves, and finally turning off the feedback loops, numbing out. And when they numb out, they're basically on a neurophysiological level, dampening these wonderful, remarkable feedback loops that go between our organs of our body and our brain to help that those systems heal and maintain optimal function. So in a sense, when we get angry at ourselves and we don't feel our, don't listen to our bodies, we are injuring the feedback loops and we're promoting the progression of disease state. Wow. Well, that is, but, but, but intuitively yeah. it's like, what do we say to people when they're ill? Relax, stay calm. They, you know, what do you do with a baby? You make all these statements. So after a surgery, you try to be supportive. So we know that intuitively we got it, but culturally we don't. Agree. Agree. Um, just listening to you. Um, I, it makes me so proud to be able to introduce this to my audience and people that listen to my show. Um, but also it's very easy to know that this could be a conversation that could be difficult to understand for a lot of people. So what I want to do is make it as simple as possible um, and then get into the complexities and vastness of the nervous system. And I wanted to start by just asking a simple question. What is the nervous system? I, metaphorically, it's a bunch of wires, yeah. uh, but they're wires that both send signals to make organs do things, but more important, and this is really what's been neglected much in medicine, is that most of our nervous system is a surveillance system. Now, the, the nerves going through our body are not merely to tell the body to do certain things, including the visceral organs of to, in sense, uh, digest or the heart to change its beating pattern. But actually, it's the sensory part, which is surveillance. What's the status of my organs? So the nervous system is really a complex uh, control and surveillance. Well, it's a control system that has a major surveillance component. And basically, when we talk about specifically the autonomic nervous system, we're talking about part of the nervous system that starts in the brainstem and goes to all the internal organs of the body. And even, let's say, surface goes to the skin as well. And it takes sensory information, brings it back there, organizes it, makes sense of it. Then literally the information percolates up to our higher brain structures. And if we're in, a, let's say, a calm physiological state, it basically gives opportunities for those higher brain structures to do their job. But if it detects threat, it basically distorts how that upper part of our brain works. So people will always talk about when they get anxious and when they get fearful, they can't solve problems. They just aren't very smart. So we have to think about what culture does in certain communities where communities are under threat. People are going to act like they're less intelligent or less capable of problem solving because we're identifying problem solving as a cortical, not as a sense of biological survival. They're surviving. They're doing major decision-making on a survival level, but not in terms of book, book learning or, or what's called executive functions, higher brain structure, decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, I think survival, as you mentioned, can be as a result of, of trauma. Hmm. And, and it's hard to dispute that trauma can have a huge impact on the nervous system. Um, but also a lot may not fully understand what trauma is how yep. it affects the nervous system. Um, so based on, on your knowledge and your expertise. Yeah. Yep. Okay. okay. So what, this is, yeah, this is a good are, point to start with because okay. what you're really saying is again, most people confuse trauma as they, they define it as an event, not as the body's response. And so people will say, Oh, that did bother me. Why are you so upset? Mm -hmm. Or look, you know, someone got held up with a gun and they've been changed ever since. You say, yeah, it's nothing, you know, or the other one, uh, look, you were raped, but you weren't hurt. You weren't physically hurt. So what are you complaining about? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. The body is making its own decision. The nervous system is making its own decision about 
how you've been affected. And the real issue is, has your body gone into not just a defense state of fight flight, but has it gone into a life threat reaction? And when you start listening to people who have experienced trauma, truly experienced it and it's retuned their life, it has retuned their autonomic nervous system and they have experienced life threat reactions. And now they their bodies are reluctant to give up its defenses. So a term I use is reluctant to relinquish defensiveness. And mm. in the world that we're all in, people who have had traumatic experiences, they may intentionally, their intentional brain may say, I would love to have a relationship. But if you go up and give them a hug, where do they go? They pull right back. And we then say, oh, obviously don't really want a relationship. That's not what's happening. Their body is detecting proximity as a lethal threat and they pull back. Wow. You just mentioned as a lethal threat, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, based on experience, in the, if the body stores these memories, yeah. these, I guess they could be, you know, I, I used to refer to them as emotional memories, but if they're stored in the, the framework and circuitry of the nervous system, it has to be a little bit more than that. Well, it's not, okay, I, I don't even like to use the word emotion because emotion is pretty high up. It, mm-hmm. There's stuff below emotion that basically regulates our physiology and basically is more like a binary type of switch. It says, I am safe enough. I have access to now all these wonderful neural pathways or I'm not safe enough. I'm in the state of danger. And then we can push it one step further. I'm not merely in danger. I am experiencing life threat. Mm. And that that is when we start walking into the world of individuals who experience trauma, we walk into the world of retuned nervous systems and individuals who have experienced life threat. And they have told me, okay, this is where my learning as, as, as a curious human being, compassionate person, I learned more about what it is to be a human being from those who experience uh, severe trauma because they have taught me what they've lost. And not only they've taught me what they've lost, they've taught me that they also still have the idealistic, optimistic image of what life should be like. So they have in their mind a dream state where they will be safe enough to be held in the arms of another. Wow. Um, Being that you have learned from people who have experienced trauma, what are some kind of traumas that you've seen and how have they affected the nervous system? Well, okay. So here is where we have to be really careful with language. And this is why we kind of want to talk using a more polyvalent form strategy, because what your question really is, it's almost like asking for a ranking of severity of traumatic experiences defined by situation and context, basically by event. And I have taken a much more, uh, let's say, open perspective in saying that's judgmental. I'm not going to judge what the, uh, the stimulus is, the value, the potency of it. I'm going to judge I'm going to allow the individual to tell me what happened to their body. So Mm -hmm. it's like if you were uh, for an individual who, let's say they're working for a company and they're humiliated by, by the boss in front of their colleagues to then that could be functionally a life threat experience. They could be totally retuned or like being bullied uh, in schoolyards. These are things that happen. And when we start talking about school, we start realizing that many children have uh they're reluctant to go to school and they tend to have gut problems and when we see the gut problems we should really be saying oh you'll get over that get back into school we should see that as a signal that their bodies are actually processing the threat signals in their environment as life threat it's going that low into their system and to be respectful of it wow um so life threat Mm. can be something to one person, but another person could perceive it differently based on how their nervous system, I guess, is is tuned. Tuned, or the word we can say, it's tuned, it's state, it's resilience, it's features at that point in time. So like for you, you know, let's assume you're quite resilient today. 
Mm. But let's say you're overwhelmed tomorrow. Okay, so today you're resilient, you get triggered, and the trigger gets resolved. Ah, that was nothing. But tomorrow you're dealing with family issues, fiscal issues, all these other things going. Your body just may feel like uh, there's no resource left. And then that same stimulus may just push you over, and you may literally shut down. So the difference is in how people respond to these signals. Do they get mobilized into a fight flight? Do they get angry and move their body? Or do they just shut down and literally dissociate and disappear? Mm. And the part of where polyvagal theory, and this had to be taught to me because I had the theory and did not, had no experience in the world of trauma, but was invited to give talks in the world of trauma. And I would talk about the theory and people would line up and with their questions say, well, this is the story of my life. This is the story of their clients that there was a circuit of shutting down. And this was the repeated uh, narrative I start to hear of that uh, under life threat situations, many people who have traumatic uh, stress, uh, post-traumatic stress, have had shutdown responses, immobilization of some level. Their body, they froze, their body didn't move or they dissociated and they can't even remember. This is a very adaptive to our physiology. And what the theory did was it gave credibility to the experiences of many who didn't have a language. And in fact, many people who were trying to describe their experiences to therapists were confronted with therapists say, you got it all wrong. You must have been in a state of fight flight. You just don't remember, as opposed to being a good witness. So many people say, no, it's not fight flight. I just couldn't move. I was... Mm. And that is where polyvagal theory stepped in and gave a narrative for people's experiences. Thank you for that. Um, you touched on this briefly, but I wanted to see if we can dive into a little bit um, further. And my question is, do states of safety and danger have different effects on brain function? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the issue is you, you can basically say, um, if you had to take a test and you are in a state of danger, where's your mind? Can you kind of, do you have literally the portals? So in, in imaging studies are the portals of getting uh, information up, up and down from higher brain structures. Are those portals available or is the body really into this? I got to protect myself. So when we're in a state of threat, our organization of our nervous system optimizes defense. When we're safe, we have options now of different types of experiences. We can say, well, we're cognitively or mentally more competent. We can do better decision-making, but we also can have a, a spiritual experiences. We can appreciate aesthetics. We can daydream in a creative way, not dissociate. Mm -hmm. So we can literally access more of our brain and we can have more, our life experiences become richer. Well, it, it's amazing to think that because you may be nervous or there may be a perceived threat, because from what I've learned, you know, the, the brain can't tell the difference between an actual threat and a perceived threat if there is a history of trauma, um, especially if the nervous system, you know, is improperly tuned. Um, so, so to to be able to have words and language for what is happening to you in the moment, I think will give a lot of people so much freedom. Yeah, let's go back to what you're saying. So um, that's what I created a term called neuroception because I was very uncomfortable with the word perception. Mm -hmm. So that uh, when we're dealing with uh, threat cues or triggers or even safety cues, we use the word, I perceive that. Now, what if you, uh, your body doesn't detect it and you use the word perception, you start getting angry at yourself for missing that. So basically our nervous system evolved not for a system of perception of signals of threat and safety, but as reflexive detectors. So we detect danger. So if someone makes a loud noise, we get startled long before we know what it is. So that's a type of neuroception. Pain is a type of neuroception. Our body reacts to signals 
and then we build the narrative to explain it. Now, the interesting part of that sequence is the body reacts, but you become aware of that body's reaction through another process that is called interoception, meaning from the inside of the body, it goes up to our brain. And we say, oh, I felt that in my gut. Mm -hmm. And now you start building these associations. Now, the bit with people with trauma experiences is that the life threat gets literally locked into their physiology through interoception. And since it's so profound, so light, you know, uh, related to life threat, then uh, it basically stays around. And this is where many of, let's say, the brilliant insightful therapists that I've run across over the years have developed these amazing uh, models of transitioning people through this, slowly through titration of those feelings, not saying, oh, you shouldn't, it shouldn't bother you. Those feelings are just faulty detections. It starts off with respect. Those are real feelings, but your body needs to learn that the trigger is not a valid trigger. So they do things like uh, uh, somatic experiencing, uses the term pendulation. Uh, basically, it means that you just uh, use it, you, you grade it. You just use little stimulus until the body gets used to it, and then you expand it more. Wow. That's incredible. Um it, I mean, just learning these concepts and like I said, having a, a language for what's been happening that we may not have been able to, you know, understand um, cognitively, but we feel it in our bodies. Yeah. It, you know, it, it really does like a, just freedom. It, it's like, oh, it, it is actually um, many of the listeners, if they come from psychological backgrounds, will have read uh, Viktor Frankl's book on uh uh, he was in the concentration camps and uh, denial of death. Uh, mm. And what he uh, basically talked about is the time between a stimulus and the response, the space, the time is where we have free will. Mm. So this is really in a polyvagal terminology, the space between the reaction of neuroception and our response to it is our free will. So we learn to become aware first of what our body's doing before we assume that we know why our body reacted to. So like if you sit across from the table and you're having a bad day and uh, let's say uh, the person across from you starts looking at their phone and not listening or looking at you and you start really getting angry at the person for not being contingent with you it's part of this nervous system had shifted and you're now misreading cues that were really quite neutral and you're viewing them now as if they are uh, dismissive of you or dislike of you or something of that order. Wow. The, the model I use is like, you know, having been an academic so long, or I'd say when I was in the trenches all the time, I was always interested in how, Let's say uh, uh, students, when they want to engage a, quote, famous professor, uh, their reactions to that famous professor, if the famous professor uh, really uh, didn't acknowledge that they were there, literally walked right by them. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but now, or, or a young assistant professor wanting to be acknowledged by a distinguished visitor. I mean, these things do happen frequently within the academic world. Uh, and because a lot of academics are literally more on a spectrum and where the focus is more on object and ideas and not on people. And so the interpretation by the person who was uh, being dismissed was, oh, I'm not important enough or the person doesn't like me. And we see this occurring frequently that our nervous systems have wired into them that when we engage someone, our neural expectancy is a reciprocal engagement by the other. Hmm. And if that's violated, we create the narrative. Wow. That's why I said to you before we went on that I've been basically articulating that the only true gift we have as a human is our own accessibility. Because when we are accessible to others, it triggers in the other accessibility. In a sense, it's a gift that pays off multiple times. So by being accessible, others become accessible to us and they feel good because that accessibility enables them to calm down, to feel more secure in their body and literally safe enough to be who they are, which means 
brilliant, sensitive, creative, loving, you know, all these features can come out because they're not in a defensive mode. It's, it's fascinating how being defensive can almost be like a a snowball effect. Well, it's a trigger to others, you know, so if you're defensive Mm -hmm. to me, you're going to be giving triggers to me. And look, you've interviewed a lot of people and I would say, most of the people that looked at the webpage are going to be really enjoyable to interview, but you've probably had a few whose faces are pretty flat and, you know, they weren't spontaneous. They were a little bit withdrawn. They weren't sending cues of accessibility. Yeah. Um, and our bodies react to that. We know intuitively that this is discomfort. Yes. And our initial reaction is, oh, it must be my fault. <laughs> you know, and, I mean, this is the natural part. We're giving species. And when we are accessible ourselves, we basically expect on a neural level the other person to reciprocate. Wow. I look at that a lot. Um, and I, I understand that emphatically because if someone seems closed off, you you automatically withdraw and then you start yeah. to question yourself. Narrative. The narrative. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, we, what I like to say is we have a very big cortex and it's very creative. It will make interesting stories. The mm-hmm. stories may not be the, they may not be true. That's what Correct. I'm saying. Correct. But we, Correct. we live with these stories because they make sense to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the actual true sense may be much simpler. The person is literally not sending us the cues our nervous system would like to get. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the vagus nerve. Um, what, what role does that play in all of this? What, well, what is it and what role does it play? Okay. The, for me, the nerve is just a wire. Okay. So it plays a big role, but it's not the role that many people think it plays. It's a wire. Do are wires important or, or is it important how information is conveyed? within the wire or back and forth the wire between some two things where the energy is coming from the control system and the object where that wire is plugged into. So the sophisticated answer is the wire is, is a vehicle. It's important, but it's not, it doesn't make decisions. It just carries information. And in a sense, the Vegas is this very large bi-directional cable that connects our bodily organs with our brain. That being said, what am I most interested in within that set, that system? Well, I'm very interested in the brainstem areas that regulate the input and interpret, the, basically re- regulate the output through the vagus and interpret the input that's coming up through the vagus. And then what do these areas of the brainstem do with it? So I'm much more interested in this neural regulation that is utilizing the wire and not the wire itself. I love that. I mean, because if, if the wire is just a vehicle yeah. for energy and, and information, um, then we're more concerned with what it's being conducted than yeah. the wire itself. And we're also interested in the signaling of the information. How do you signal the brain to send information down or information up? How do you signal it? Mm-hmm. And that is, okay, so I'm very interested in that. And the part that I find really interesting is things like intonation of voice is a real signal of recruiting that vagal system. Now we know this intuitively because how do mothers calm babies? They, with the prosodic voice and how do you talk to your pets? Use the same type of voice because their nervous system has a template that the modulation of vocalizations in a certain frequency band is signals of safety. It's as simple as that. And and if you maximize or optimize those frequencies, you shift the physiological state of the individual. So how do you tell a person to calm down? Do you yell at them? No. You think, (laughs) well, the issue is often people will do that. They'll say, Mm. calm down. That's not going to work, right? But if they say, calm down, or do you need me near you? Would you like to hold my hand? Do you need a hug? I'm here for you. You know, just relax. There's a totally different impact. And the interesting part is that for mammals, especially social mammals, the frequency bands in which this information is conveyed 
is very uh it's based, it's based on the physics of middle ear structures. And this is now a wild thing mm -hmm. that we can literally, by knowing how the middle ear works, we can literally create a auditory acoustic information that calm bodies down, calm our pets down. Um, it, it's really quite remarkable that literally all social species, whether they're um, whales or cats or dogs or cows, there's going to be a frequency band of modulated sounds that their nervous system will say, oh, that's safety. Mm. I can calm down. Wow. This is incredible. Mm. Um, and, and I guess there's, if, if you, if you know how to manipulate that, yeah, yeah you can, you can yeah. deliver safety to someone. Yeah. But I would say, okay. Uh, you, you know how to do it. You, you're engaging for people. You're relaxing for people. Uh, when you interview them, you're using, uh, you, you think it's because you're talking slowly, but you're talking with more intonation, prosody. And, you know, a lot of people do it intuitively. They, they don't have the language to describe mm -hmm. even what they do intuitively. And intuitively, they're increasing the range of frequencies that they're using. And they're also talking slower and they're also extending the duration of their phrases. There are mm. all these signals that are coming out that enable the other nervous system to detect and to calm. Would that be what's, what's called co-regulation? Yeah. Well, co-regulation is yes. Co-regulation is okay. It's like listening and talking, but mm. it's like being responding to signals of safety and then communicating signals of safety. Mm. It's like, you know, it's like singing a duet, you know, <laughs> and these, these things have been around for a long, long period of time. We just haven't had a language for it. Mm. I got you. So, so speaking of that language and the question of the day, <laughs> what is the polyvagal theory and how did you develop it? Well, you know, there's, it's a complicated question because the theory came from something that is not the theory now. So the theory came from my research studying preterm babies. And it was really in terms of my research of trying to uh, develop methodologies to both monitor uh, vagal activity that could be used in medical situations to literally identify risk. And there's something that I call the vagal paradox. And that it was when I was doing work on preterm babies, um, I, I believe that the patterning of heart rate, uh, which was regulated by the vagus, especially the breathing rhythm, was basically a protector, showing you the really power of the vagal system in terms of uh, a state of calmness. And I was really a proponent of that you could make these measurements and then if you lost this pattern it was gone it could be alerting to medical staff to take care of these babies when i realized that there was another vagal component that was really kind of missing from the narrative and that is in the intensive care unit the big signal in for neonatologists is not the respiratory rhythm it's something else it's a massive slowing of the heart rate called the bradycardia often apnea where the baby stops breathing and bradycardia where the heart rate gets too slow, are signals that there's not sufficient amount of oxygenated blood going to go to the cortex. So it's really very damaging or dangerous. And so I was stuck with this paradox. The paradox was that that bradycardia, that uh, apnea was also considered to be a vagal response. So how could the vagus both be a protector and also lethal. And I posed it as a paradox. And that sent me into a deep period of time, extensive period of time of scholarship, where I had to find the literature in many different disciplines or all things Vegas, let's call it that. And what I realized was there was a evolutionary shift from mammals, from reptiles to mammals, in which there were literally two different branches of the Vegas evolving. So the bradycardia was literally a evolutionary antecedent that reptiles use when they immobilize under threat. And the respire rhythm was this mammalian modification of vagal patterns. Well, 
this resulted in kind of an explanation of it. Now, the another way of understanding it, and this is a little bit dense, um, in the brainstem, when we look in embryology, which means the development in an embryo to a fetus before the baby is born, through autopsy studies, they can literally see in uh, mammals a migration, a movement of cardiac inhibitory, meaning vagal fibers that slow the heart, moving from the back of the brainstem, the dorsal area of the brainstem, to the ventral area. And this ventral migration of actually neurons is a journey towards sociality because where do those neurons go? This is, this is really the core of the theory. The neurons go to an area of the brainstem that regulate the muscles of the face and head so that our voice and our facial expressivity and even the neuroregulation of those middle ear structures that enable us to pull out human voice are linked in the brainstem with this newer ventral vagus. So we basically have a vagal system that is linked to our social communication. And when the neural tone to our face goes, flat faces like trauma or fever, uh, or even things like Bell's palsy, where you have hemiparalysis, mm -hmm. you start getting a massive amount of comorbidities that are linked to autonomic dysregulation. So it was this part of the story linked the neuroregulation of observables, meaning voice and face, to the vagal regulation of the heart. And once I realized that, I realized also that clinic clinicians, insightful clinicians, didn't have to measure the heart rate patterns to understand the vagal control of the heart. All they had to do was listen to the voices of their clients, look at their faces. They would know what to look for and what to listen for. Wow. <laughs> um, I felt like I was just listening to a documentary um, about the nervous system and the brain. And uh, It's amazing. If, if you think about this literally ventral migration, you say, here are these neurons and they're going for this little journey, but where are they mm -hmm. going? Right. They're now linking to facial expressivity, intonation of voice. And this makes mammals different than their reptilian ancestors. And what's really interesting, the whole basis of human civilization is based on uh, co-regulation, what you're bringing up. And this, this is the system of co-regulation. And co-regulation leads to trust. And trust is really the, the, the basically the whole I would say the core, the kernel of how civilization occurred. We trusted others. And even uh, commerce is all based on trust. So it's this interesting journey of, of basically uh, embedding the regulation of our physiological state with the nerves that we have some control over, facial expressivity and voice. It's just remarkable. Let me ask a question. I, I just thought about this. How important is a smile to someone who may not be uh, regulated? Okay. Now, remember, there. this is actually, now you're, going, you're tapping the professor in me. There are different mm -hmm. types of smiles. Okay. <laughs> and Darwin was very interested in this. And my friend Paul Ekman spent his whole life on these things. They're what are called uh, upper face and lower face smiles. Um, upper face smiles are much more spontaneous. They deal with the orbital muscle around the eye called the opiculatus oculi. They're very much linked to our physiology. And when people do Botox, they get rid of the crinkles of that muscle. They paralyze that muscle. And now that muscle is not sending cues of safety and exuberance to the other. And when people have Bell's palsy, you can go to websites and see that when there's paralysis, on one side of the face, and then you do kind of like a mix and a match, and you say, uh, which side is more attractive? Which, and you, know, you can have famous people who have this, and you realize that if that side's been paralyzed, you don't find the person uh, attractive. You find them cold. Mm -hmm. So the answer is this system in the upper part of the face is a signal to our nervous system of accessibility and other. So that upper part of the face smile is critical. Now, what about the lower part of the face or what we call fake smiles? If you, you know, I did work within the world of autism for decades and autistic kids are going to uh, 
be told to smile often with somewhat of a false smile, and it's going to be lower face. Lower face through our own evolution is linked to basically aggressive behavior because of biting. So if the smile goes down low, smiling down there is can also be a trigger of aggression, false smiles. So our nervous system is does a pretty good job in distinguishing uh, the validity of a smile. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so to kind of bring all of this together and let's say someone was to just jump on right now, and um, we've discussed the polyvagal theory. We've discussed a lot of things of, about how the nervous system, um, the circuitry of the nervous system and, and how it affects um, safety, connection, so many things. If there was one thing that you could pinpoint for someone, let's say you were, you were speaking to a group of uh, first graders and they were trying to understand this. Um, Fortunately, there are people speaking to uh, first and second graders about this. They're not me, but they're really educators who want to bring this into the school system. But yeah, I would give you a a sense. I think they would do a better job than I do. But what I would say is that we have to truly acknowledge that our physiological state biases how we react to the world. So when our body's calmer, we're more accessible, we're more... uh, compassionate, more more welcoming. And when our bodies are in states of defense, it's all proximal or more proximal. So we are different. We're not the compassionate, generous person that we like to think of ourselves in paper. On paper, we are really very needy. And the awareness of this is the first step. So the take home is, yeah, our physiology changes and how can we uh, use that knowledge because it's going to limit our range of behavior we have to become more present within our body, meaning more aware of our own physiological state. And when we're aware of it, we are really supporting it. We're saying, I'm listening to you. And now if I have to go on stage, I basically am saying, I'm going to take a few breaths. I'll calm down. But in an hour, I'll I'll do something else. So we kind of do an internal negotiation with our resources and say, yeah, I I can do it for another hour. But, you know, Later, I, I'm going to listen to you. Mm. Thank Awareness, you number one. Physiological state is an important mediator, or we can say biases our relationship to the world or with the world. And number two, our awareness of that physiological state is really the gift that we can give to our own body. We can help it monitor through complex situations. Nice. Um, okay, I want to ask you a question um, because... I want you to to try and take the work that you've done at this point in your career. And if you could be in front of a group of people and they said to you, what would you want it to be defined by or what would you want your legacy um, to show about who you are? What would you say? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, these are questions that 40-year-olds ask, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And because they serve as part of the motivation, um, as you age and aging out is part of the the rest of the story, um, you are more interested in completing what you want to complete and less interested in legacy, okay? But the legacy is really the deep respect of our physiological state and that that state is optimistically modifiable. This is critical because the community that we live in wants to look for signatures of pathology and assumes that those signatures, which may also be physiological, are not flexible. Polyvagal theory emphasizes state. It's saying, yeah, in this state, this is what you get, but you don't have to be in that state all the time. You have to find the portal that triggers the system to move out of that state. So it's a very optimistic strategy about life. Thank you. Okay, last question. If you could use your platform to educate anyone who may be struggling with their mental or emotional health and hasn't yet made the connection to the role that their nervous system plays in both, what would you say? Well, I think you have the answer. 
they have to have a better understanding that their experiences are often understandable from a neural perspective. And part of the difficulties of mental health is that many, or let's say even most, including in psychiatry, are not really that well grounded in the neurophysiology of the systems that are changing these underlying states. They're in, locked into the constructs of, let's say, disease, uh, pathology, and even emotion and constructs that are really quite removed from the foundational systems that determine uh, safety, safety and threat reactions. And so the point that I really want to emphasize is that part of the story is relatively simple. Our bodies evolved to detect threat and detect safety. And when we talk about many of the attributes of mental illness or mental disorders, it's a nervous system that is biased to detect threat. Hmm. That, so that bias that. is optimistically modifiable and not necessarily through drugs, modifiable through signals in the environment. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Porges. Thank you so much for this. Um, this has been beyond um, anything that I could have even imagined mm -hmm. to have this opportunity to do this with you. I'm so thankful, so grateful um, that you were gracious enough to to allow for me to interview you and share your knowledge and your expertise. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for leading me on a very interesting dialogue. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, where can people find you online or on social media? Oh, oh, very good. Actually, I'm going to lift. There is something I do want to uh, mention, if I can find it. Here it is. I do want to mention this. This is a book, Our Polyvagal World, that mm. was written with my son, Seth. But it's readable. Seth is a great communicator. It's the... It's an accessible book, and it's, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and the point that I really want to emphasize is it's written for everyone, not written for therapists or scientists. Uh, people can get more information about me through the Polyvagal Institute. That's polyvagalinstituteoneword.org. And there's courses and other, you know, there's a lot of things on the website about polyvagal theory, including my talks. Okay. So those would be... Uh, I would go there first and also I would look at the, the book. I think the book is a readable introduction to the theory with application. And the books can be found where? Well, the book can be found on Amazon. Um, it's actually uh, Norton, uh, the publisher, has actually a polyvagal bookshelf. There's several books, five by that I've done, and you know there are other people who have written books uh, framing their work within polyvagal theory. So the bookshelf is growing. Okay. okay. Well, again, Dr. Porges, I want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the way that you do the things that you do, the, the, the depth that you've gone to and able to give us insight into the world of our nervous system and, and how we can change, you know, the way we view threat and detect things just based on the way our body responds to them and understanding those things. Well, I, I'd like to also use another term. I said we need to claim our evolutionary heritage. And what mm -hmm. is that evolutionary heritage? It's the neural circuits that are already on board to co-regulate, to calm us down, to mitigate threat reactions. So it's not like we're evolving to a higher level of consciousness. We can't evolve to a higher level of consciousness unless we can feel safe enough to be in our bodies. And that tool is already on board. Gotcha. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Porges. You're welcome, Jay. Thank you very much for inviting me.